This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mark Borkowski, the Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Acquisition at the Customs and Border Protection Directorate in the Homeland Security Department. He's also CBP's Chief Acquisition Officer and Component Acquisition Executive. I spoke with Mark at a recent event sponsored by ACT IAC. CBP is a tough place to work right now. Uh, you can imagine, right? Uh, let me let me give you some some reasons why. First of all, we have the Southwest border surge, which which is a real challenge to us. As some of you have seen the news, we got lots of people. We've had people that we've had to hold under bridges because we have no place to put them. That is taking a toll on our workforce, our workforce that's caring for those people, that's trying to deal with that. And by the way, that is, to, depending on how you look at it, under significant social and political attack because of the environment. Uh, so that's very, very difficult for us. That Southwest border surge has also required us to divert funding that might have been used for other things like investments in order to pay for things like diapers, medical care, water, food, shelter for those people. So this has been very stressing on our workforce. And and you can imagine what it's like for people who are caring, our folks who are caring for these these, uh, migrant uh, populations who are very sympathetic people. Um, And it's, it's a drain. It's, it's a drain on our budget. I mentioned the fact that we have had to divert hundreds of millions of dollars uh, from in, intended purposes to cover for these people. But also, we have a significant budget shortfall in our pay accounts. Uh, there are a couple of reasons for that, one of which is that our pay accounts are augmented by fees. Fees come from people coming into the country. We haven't had people coming into the country under the COVID environment you know, for travel. Uh, so we have hundreds of millions of dollars of pay shortfalls. That's a stress on population because at some point people wonder if they're going to continue to get paid. COVID has been a challenge, right? Uh, and, and now we have this vaccination mandate. The population in CBP is just like the population in the rest of the country. We have very, very strong opinions on both sides of that. That's affecting our population. There have been this year, uh, so far to date, 10 suicides in CBP. We're on pace for a record, and that's not a good record. That's not a record we want. But I'm just trying to give you an idea of how stressed this uh, organization is. We've got something like 45 COVID deaths, most of which are duty-related. Because remember, our frontline people have not had the opportunity to telework. You can't telework and manage a port. You can't telework and patrol the area between the ports of entry. So a lot going on, very, very challenging time for people in CBP. And that's the environment, okay? Now, what's that mean for acquisition? Well, there are several issues for acquisition. Some of them are long-term. Some of them are related to this. I gotta be careful what words I use. I wanna say chaos. Um, I'm not, uh, maybe that's not the best word, but you can imagine how, oh, by the way, one other dynamic, just because this one is one of my favorites. Had one of my uh, GS-15 directors come into my office last week and say, I just would like you to know This is the first time in my career that everyone between me and the secretary, every supervisor and manager between me and the secretary is acting. That's incredible because there are about six layers. Every one of them is acting. So this is the overall environment. A lot of the focus, the commissioner's focus has been on workforce resiliency, health and morale of the workforce, because we have to. We are very, very proud of the fact that our workforce is doing phenomenal things despite this, right? Our workforce is, in fact, 
continuing to operate the ports of entry, continuing to process uh, uh, trade and travel, continuing to patrol between the borders, continuing to meet and care for these people that are coming across the border, despite this pressure. For acquisition, and again, I'm going to use acquisition at the beginning of this in the broad sense of the word, right? Because some people use acquisition to mean procurement. But when we say acquisition in my business, it actually means something more than procurement. It means the identification of priorities and needs, a process by which you decide which of those needs and, and, and uh, uh, requirements you're going to handle first, a process that decides what's the most cost-effective way to handle those needs, and then a process that goes out and actually acquires, whether it's through contract or other means, acquires the capability to meet those needs and does a kind of an iterative process to make sure that you're on track to do that until you actually deploy that. That's acquisition. Acquisition for us is a developing skill. I mean, going back to your point, Jason, back when we first met back probably in 2008, um, I would say that DHS did not have much of an acquisition governance approach. In fact, a lot of the initiative in DHS and demanded by Congress and the GAO was put in place some of the rigor and discipline that we're used to seeing in places like Department of Defense or NASA. DHS, quite frankly, didn't have it. All right. So a lot of acquisition has been been building that and trying to trying to build and develop competencies in program management because we didn't have those either. We didn't actually have trained acquisition program managers. So we focused a lot on that. We continue to focus a lot on that. Um, one of the issues is, you know, these program managers are people who become very wedded to their programs, right? Think of this environment I just told you where funds are being diverted from programs and program managers are being asked to continue to deliver despite that. Very challenging environment for our program managers. In terms of procurement, which is a, in the way I've defined acquisition, an instrument and a subset of acquisition, because procurement supports that broad acquisition. Procurement also supports what I would say are normal com commodity purchases. We don't buy Xerox paper using that acquisition process, right? We just go buy Xerox paper, toilet paper, pens, pencils, pay rents. So the demands on procurement, and, and Jason, you said $3.2 billion. The number I have my, for my procurement people this year is closer to $4 billion closer to $4 billion. And there have been, you know, additional funds that have been provided here because we did not intend to be buying diapers and putting up shelters and buying food and water and so forth. We didn't intend that, right? So some of that money, we have gotten some help for that. Some of that we've had to source from our own, uh, our own internal sources. But the demands on my procurement community are, have been incredible because you can imagine they've got this scheduled spend that they're supposed to be doing. And then we throw into the mix, that, oh, by the way, by tomorrow, could you please have a contract to put up what we call soft-sided facilities in Del Rio, Texas, because we got no place to keep, keep people. And while we're at it, what happens when Hurricane Ida comes through? Okay, So the demands on the procurement community have been, and I think our procurement folks would say this, I know our budget folks would say it, I don't think this is anything like we've ever seen before. And I know that when we have these kinds of sessions, people say, well, you know, we hear that all the time. I tend not to say that. I'm the guy in the meetings who says, wait a minute, you know, 15 years ago we were here. I mean, you know, you just got to have that kind of a memory. I don't think we've seen anything quite like this. We're very proud of our procurement community. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the stress on the system to start, because I think there's a lot of questions that come up and say, why do things take so long? Why are the processes still so challenging? 
first of all, my procurement staff is understaffed. Now, remember, I just told you that we have, for the people that are on board, which, by the way, are not, are not staffed to the requirement that I've defined. Our baseline budgets don't cover the salaries of the people I have on board. So we have had to take steps. In fact, we, we in Enterprise Services have had a hiring freeze for, for the past couple of months because we had more people on board than we had salary dollars. Now, you know, we've made some internal adjustments, and those internal adjustments do, in fact, affect some of our contracts back, okay, just so you know. But we don't have enough people to, to, to meet the demand, all right? That's, that's problem one. Problem two, if you ask our folks, they've gotten really, really good at, you know, Hurricane Ida came, came through, I need you to get me some generators, I need you to get me some facilities, I need you to get some water and food. We've got a, a, a community, a contracting group here that is so good at doing that, that people take it for granted. If It's really an extraordinary demand to put on people, but they've done it so many times that, frankly, people forget how hard it is to do that. They can do that pretty easily. But when they're doing that, and I have, say, a, a non-intrusive inspection contract, that's a whole different kind of contract, right? That's an RFP, that's proposals, that's evaluations. Now I've got this nice team activity, which is not just my procurement community. That team activity involves, for example, folks who would otherwise be at the border processing people. We need them to come off and help us in the procurement process to evaluate proposals so we make good, fair, reasoned decisions. Right. Two issues there. One is they're de- I-, I got a problem down at the border. It's hard for me to free those people up to do the procurement thing. Second thing is, frankly, they're not trained to do that. So there's a lot of fits and starts and challenges in, in, in getting people to do that right. And there's a lot of rework because, as I mentioned earlier, we are developing acquisition competencies broadly, but we're not done. So I have pockets of places where we've develop training and we go in and we reinforce as necessary but when you when we start to talk about the rest of the community having to participate in this and i need both their their quantity of people who otherwise are demanded at the border and i need them to be competent at this particular skill that they were never trained for that ends up being a challenge as well um we so get let me jump in real quick because one of the things that I was, I was doing a little bit of research for for our conversation, and uh, I, I nerded out on your budget on the DHS budget justification uh, because it's always good to find some data, some statistics through the budget justification documents. One of the things I said was you guys, I think, were looking to hire as many as six full time equivalents to kind of get your ratios two yeah. to one to contractors versus I think it's one to one now. Maybe talk a little bit about that idea yeah. that how you're trying to kind of balance that workforce. That's, that's a great one, because that's been a priority for some time. And Jason, as you know, I, I don't know if you know this, I came to CBP originally because I was tired of acquisition and never wanted to do it again. And so I came in and I was doing mission support for the Border Patrol, and it was great. I was having a ball. I had the budget. I had the, the pipe and drum corps. You know, I was buying ammunition. I had human resources. I was really enjoying that. But SBI Net, as you know, was a challenge. And again, going back to this point, there's no acquisition expertise, really. And no, nobody even need, no, knew what it was or that you needed it. So the CBP got in trouble. And uh, they looked around. Anybody here even know how to spell the word acquisition? And, you know, that was my – I was hiding under a desk. But they found me anyway, and they, they basically made me do it. That's important to understand. They made me do it because they can do that through a senior executive service. They give you this wonderful letter. It says, either you take this job or you quit. I like to tell people I made the wrong decision. Okay, so so I, I took that that job, and um, when I got into it, what I realized was I had a ratio um, because we didn't have two contractors 
to, to every one government FTE. It was two to one. Actually, it was a little worse than two to one. In my own view, that's backwards, right? Because I believe that the government has to have access to core skills. Um, and, and there are certain skills that are um, what I would call high demand, uh, low density, things like system engineering. Uh, cost and schedule estimating is another one. Cost and schedule estimating is a great example because I can't really afford to populate each of my programs with full-time cost and schedule because they need it part-time. So the question is, how do I provide that? So, so we went through this process and looked at what we had. We didn't have FTEs, but I established a goal way back then to flip it from two-to-one contractor government to two-to-one government to contractor. So we've been on that path for some time. We are about at 1.5 to 1 at this point, government to contractor. And um, so what we have been trying to do is move money from contract support. It kind of is a zero-sum game so I can build up government competencies and acquisition. And, you know, it goes to that point we're talking about in NII, right? There are some things that contractors can't do for me. I can't have contractors doing technical evaluation of proposals. That's an inherently governmental function. So I need government personnel at a certain quantity and a certain competency in order to allow things to happen more smoothly and more quickly. Uh, one of the we have a longer term plan to build up the government competencies in this. But this six positions is kind of an initial increment of that. So that's what you saw in the budget. All right. Well, thank you. I think that's it's helpful because you talked about the workforce. You talked about them being overworked and and in uh, in many ways not enough staff to meet the needs. Uh, and, and I think this is a important piece to to start to kind of address that issue. It's and unfortunately in government we know it's it's a slow roll, but if it's 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 great to see it's happening. We have to take a break. My guest today is Mark Borkowski, the Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Acquisition at the Customs and Border Protection Directorate in the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mark Borkowski, the Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Acquisition at the Customs and Border Protection Directorate in the Homeland Security Department. I spoke with Mark at a recent event sponsored by ACT-IAC. Mark, I want to shift over to the fact that we know or the audience for this is, is a lot of industry, a lot of uh, government folks. So, so let's let's maybe delve into what are some of the trends you're seeing at CBP for 2021 around uh, acquisition, whether it is what you're buying, how you're buying it, small business versus unrestricted. Uh, we got to get down the, the path of, of OTAs or for uh, I think DHS has CSOs. So let's, <clears throat> let's maybe delve into acquisition. So to set some context here, let me go to the, the one chart I did send because I, I want people to see this. I think it's important that they do because I think it will frame what you're asking. Look, this is this is a CBP strategy chart, right? And um, hopefully you can blow it up on your screen so you can see it. And I'm not going to go through it in detail. And frankly, this is from the last administration, and I'm sure we will adjust it over time. But what I want to call your attention to is the box in the middle called Enduring Mission Priorities. And Well, it's not a box. I guess it's a row in this pyramid. And then below that, the strategic objective. This is something, and we spent a lot of time, the senior leadership here spent a lot of time I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the enduring mission priorities except to say, look, that's what CBP does. We do these things, right? I'm going to read these just so you understand, because one of the things that amazes me about CBP is how broad its mission is. Counterterrorism, combat transnational crime, secure the border, facilitate lawful trade and protect revenue, and facilitate lawful travel. Those are the enduring mission priorities. You notice that only one of those five is secure the border. 
That's an important thing to keep in mind, because if you were to read the press, you would think that the only thing that CBP is responsible for is securing the border. You know, we're responsible for things like making sure that uh, items produced by forced labor never get into commerce so that we can discourage forced labor. You don't hear much about that, but there's a lot of activity there. And by the way, if you think about it, how do you find out that they were made by forced labor? Those are the kinds of questions that we have broadly. Now, below that are these strategic objectives. And again, I'm not going to go through them in detail, but if I'm, if I'm a business development person, this is what I'm going to be looking at. I'm going to be looking at these strategic objectives, and I'm going to ask myself, how serious are they about them? Did, was this just an exercise? You know, most organizations do this strategic planning. Did they just check a box so that they could tell GAO they got one, or did they really mean it? I'm telling you that the senior leadership here spends a lot of time on these strategic objectives, and we've got champions assigned to each of them, and they're reviewed in, by the senior leadership on a regular basis. There are milestones and objectives and plans. So we're pretty serious about these. We spend a lot of time on these. So, you know, on the left, you're going to see mission. These are the things we want to focus on doing better than we're doing. There are priorities, and they link to the missions, right? Counter network. These are that's a that's an an objective an initiative we want to take to help us with our counterterrorism. For example, targeting and vetting is a thing we need to do to better perform our mission. Like like I gave you the example of forced labor. How do I target shipments to inspect them? How do I vet them? Right. Awareness and enforcement. How do we know what's going on? Uh, securing compliant trade, biometric identification, stakeholder experience. Stakeholder experience a big deal. How do I engage with the trade community? How do I engage with the traveling public, right? So those are mission-focused objectives. Team-focused uh, objectives, hiring and retention. Obviously, we're talking about, you know, we need uh, an adequate workforce. Wellness and resilience. Remember I told you we have 10 suicides so far? Wellness and resilience is a huge priority here. You know, I get a lot of folks coming in and talking to me about things like their cameras, their radars, their, you know, their technologies. Love to hear about ideas on, got any ideas on wellness and resilience? Because we are struggling here. Partnerships. This is with the Intel community and international partnerships. And then over on the right is future. And that's probably what most of you would be looking at when you think about where we're going to go with, you know, technology investments. I would encourage you to look at the whole thing. But I guess if I were you, I'd say, oh, future, right? That's what they're going to go. Uh, well, intelligence. Intelligence is a huge priority because we need to leverage intelligence. Our demands are too high for us to brute force the response to our mission. We need better intelligence. Data and analytics, probably no surprise to anybody, right, that data and analytics is one of the future things that we think we can leverage. And all these things are about leveraging technology to make it, to make, to, to give us more insight and to be more effective in our mission. And then IT infrastructure. Um, this is the kind of going to the cloud kind of stuff, right, uh, among other things, IT infrastructure. So as a kind of a framework, I thought it was useful to leave you. That's the only chart I'm providing here. I thought that was useful to leave you with that because those are the things we're looking at going forward as priorities. So, so let me let me I'm gonna jump in right here. We have a question before I get to the question. One of the things that I think somebody may ask as well is, okay, you told me there's leaders for each of these areas, and each of those lead, those mission areas or, or parts of that grow. How do I find out who they are? How do I how do I get in touch with them? I don't want to call Mark every time. I want to talk about work uh, workforce resiliency i want to call mark every time i talk about data analytics because i think one of the challenges is is getting to that right person to have that conversation to say hey here's how i can help or vice versa here is 
another agency coming to you going, hey, we have a solution we want to share with CBP because we have a very similar problem. You know, Jason, I've been doing this for years, right? I still have those half an hour introductory sessions with anybody who wants to have them. And the purpose of those is often to say, oh, that's what you have. Let me introduce you to this person in the organization. You make an interesting point about, I, I hadn't thought about, ought we advertise that more broadly? I'll have to think about that, right? Because these people who are the champions tend not to be acquisition people. I want them to know about their, uh, it's a great question. So the answer that I would give you at this point is, have them call my office first. <laughs> um, but, but let me think about that a little bit. Let me think about that a little bit. Well, That's a great point. Well, one of the things that DHS does do very well, and this uh, not just CBP, is, is you all do have an industry day. You know, it's a great point because, I, you know, as I, was th- as I think about these, I, I, I don't recall seeing too many times that I've gone to an industry day where actually somebody put up their strategic plan, right? And it, and it goes to that question about is a strategic plan really something serious, right? And I, I remember thinking uh, like a year or so ago, maybe this is where we have to start when we're having a dialogue with industry. But we don't think that way for some reason. So I think it's kind of innovative and novel that I'm showing our, a, a summary of our strategic plan. But But really that... It's a great point because we don't think to bring those people in. Now, when we have an industry day, the usual questions are, can you give me the schedule of your anticipated procurements, right? And, and look, we got the forecasting system. I, I presume all of you people know what that website is. If you don't, my folks made sure I got it so I can tell you. Uh, I've got some <laughs> focus of the upcoming procurements. And, and, you, and we think that's what people want to hear at industry day, so we design them accordingly. But I do think the point here is maybe there's more to these industry days than that kind of pretty mechanical discussion, right? This is what leadership is thinking about. We actually got a a question from Eleanor who asked, when is the next CBP industry day? Is there any way to find, do you have anything planned in the short term? I don't think we do, but I don't know. I will, uh, I will have to get back with you on that. You know, we will do them. I don't, I don't know when the next one's planned. We have to take a break. My guest today is Mark Borkowski, the assistant commissioner in the office of acquisition at the customs and border protection directorate in the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mark Borkowski, the Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Acquisition at the Customs and Border Protection Directorate in the Homeland Security Department. I spoke with Mark at a recent event sponsored by ACT-IAC. Sashi writes about, asked you a question about supply chain. What are some of the steps you're taking to secure supply chain uh, where is the risk moving forward in supply chain management? That is a great question. In fact, we're spending time on it. And, and here's why I think it's such a cool question. You know, when we think of supply chain, most times when we have this discussion, we're talking about what I would call an IT-focused supply chain. And that is, I got electronics, I got piece parts. Um, do I have to worry about embedded malicious software? How about the quality? Are they counterfeit, right? And most of the discussions in the last couple of years about supply chain have focused on that. And our CIO focuses on that. He's got a whole cybersecurity initiative, and he's got, it's got three parts, and one of those parts has to do with supply chain security. How do you target it? So he, he has what he would say, and I, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean, I mean it to say, yeah, he's got a plan. We still have to think about how do we know that it's effective? How do we know that it's working, right? So we do, we do focus on that part of the supply chain. But... In the last year or less, we realize that there's a whole other dimension to supply chain. And it's a it's an access to supply chain question, right? So we haven't in the past really thought as much about that. Now, there have been a couple of uh, folks in here who have shown us some tools 
uh, where they help us. Because, you know, the supply chain, I, I don't even think my prime contractors half the time know their supply chain, right? I mean, you talk, start talking about getting to the six, seven, eight tier of vendor. Um, nobody knows who that is, right? We don't have that insight. And sometimes those vendors are like one-off single point failures because of a particular design of a bolt that they happen to produce, and they're the only ones. And by the way, they're producing it out of a tent somewhere in the middle of Morocco. Well, we've had a couple of uh, vendors come in here and show us their analysis tools that, you know, they build these models. And some of you have probably seen them. The Intel community does it all the time, where they build these nodes and networks, and they show how this node connects to that node. And you end up with these pictures with all these nodes and all these lines and interconnections. And we use that counter network, right? That's one of our big priorities and initiatives. We use those kinds of tools. Well, these these analyses kind of look similar, right? They kind of look like that when they're depicted. And you start seeing where are these critical nodes that you didn't even know were there in your supply chain. This became really, really apparent during COVID. Because you remember the demand for PPE, personal protective equipment, masks and stuff. And we went out looking for masks and found out that the supply chain is all based in China. And, and by the way, China was saying, hey, we're not sending anything to you because we need them ourselves. How the heck did that happen? And by the way, who would have ever thought, if, if I were to ask you a year ago, identify your programs where managing the supply chain is a critical issue, I don't think too many people would have put PPE on the list, right? So in addition to that kind of cybersecurity IT-focused supply chain, we've identified there's another dimension to supply chain. And we're actually in the process of writing a policy to require analysis of supply chain. And we're going to do it quickly. And the draft policy simply says, okay, uh, program managers, contracting officers, contracting office representatives, here are the two types of supply chain security we're concerned about. And I've already described the two of them to you. The one that most people think about when they ask the question, and this other one that we now realize is equally important. You have an obligation. You have an obligation to mitigate the risk to your supply chain, and here are, the, here are the steps you should go through. Now, the problem we have is we've given them no tools. So we're giving them this obligation with no tools to help them meet that. So our first step is to say we want to create an awareness of the criticality of this. We want to create people. We want people to start thinking and identifying risks. You know, I've had meetings with folks on this, and they said, well, they're going to identify the risk, but they got no resources to mitigate it. I said, true, but at least leadership should be aware that that risk exists. That's the first step. So we are actually drafting this, what, what is the beginning of a policy, which is going to impose a requirement to consciously think about and answer the question, is your supply chain at risk? Over time, over time, we want to add fidelity to that based on what we learn and what we see as opportunities that perhaps somebody in industry has for, okay, now how do I actually create tools to help make that efficient and effective. That's that's where we are in supply chain. So thank you for the heads up on the policy. I think that's really important because I think um, what we're seeing is a lot of agencies are, are had that same kind of recognition that it's not just, oh, am I worried about cybersecurity or am I worried about the back doors that are put in by software, but hey, can I even get the chip that I need to to create that system or whatever? So so I think that's a good one. Uh, we got another question that came in from Asha, and uh, this person asks, uh, DHS and CBP in particular do a lot for small businesses. Would it be possible to promote a matchmaking day where small businesses and I guess other ones like uh, women-owned small businesses can meet and connect for teaming? It's often possible to get on a team on our own. 
So I think I think I think the, the the broader question is how do you kind of do that matchmaking? How do you make sure small businesses are part of CBP and, and the acquisition process? So, so matchmaking, you're talking about teaming up, helping small businesses find partners, right? Right. And, it could be another small, another large, or whatever for for to help CBP meet their goals. Okay. So couple things on that. I, you know, I've seen that done before uh, in the past and certainly would be willing to do that. We've got a, you know, as you know, like everybody else, we've got an office that aggressively tries to help uh, small businesses. And if there really is, if there's a demand for that kind of thing, that office would, would love to facilitate that. I want to mention, though, another thing we've tried to do, and it's it's had sort of mixed success. You know, I, I, as I as you know, Jason, I have these, I set aside a few times a week, 30 minutes, you know, we get a queue and anybody who wants to come in and talk to me and, and my staff, and a lot of folks are, you know, small businesses. And I, I, I don't always have the capacity because we, we sometimes would, you know, oftentimes say, well, let's try to create something for this small business. And by the way, if it's a small business, we will work a little harder to create an opportunity for a small business if we think it's worth it, right? If we think there's to, to get something started. But sometimes I had small businesses come in and say, look, I don't think I'm ever going to be doing um, business directly with you, uh, but can you help me find somebody um, in a larger business um, who will actually listen to me because normally when I go to a large business, they listen to me, but only because they want to buy me out and kill my idea because it's competitive to what they're trying to do. And these are the kinds of discussions I would have, right? So I had a, a person who worked for me who was familiar with these things, these consortia and DOD uses them, right? And they're non-traditional, but, but they're really neat because they can create, you know, you can find academics and small businesses, non-traditional providers, large businesses. And we actually kind of sponsored, encouraged the creation of something called the Border Security Technology Consortium. And um, it was intended to do, in my view, to do exactly that. It was intended to create, and it, it's got 70 some odd members, and it's, it's struggled a, a bit to get going, but it, it does exist, and it has members exactly for that reason, to create networks among them. That was my purpose in doing it. So I would, I would suggest to people that at least that is a vehicle that exists. Now, it hasn't been as, as successful as I had hoped it would be. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but it exists, and it, it was designed specifically for that network. In terms of uh, creating a matchmaking day, I would say that if, if actually there's a, an interest and a demand in that, we'd certainly be interested in supporting that. And I think one of the things that that helps is a lot of times businesses don't know how to find each other. And sometimes it's hard enough for you all to, to kind of make the match. But if you create the atmosphere for it to happen, it, it can. We got another question that came in from Mark. And actually, I was going to ask a very similar one. So good timing, Mark. Thank you for your question. Mark asks, is CBV considering using more of a, quote unquote, non-traditional procurement evaluation practice championed by the Procurement Innovation Lab, such as move away from written proposals, use of tech challenges, oral presentations, soft down selects and, and the like. Any thoughts about that? Plus, we can brought it up by other, uh, other innovations you're, you're looking yeah. to use? Uh, actually, we use those techniques quite often, and the use of them is growing. So yes, we do use those. We've used them in several of our recent procurements, and we expect to continue to use them. So we're familiar with them. We like them, you know, as they develop precedent so that people, they become more acceptable. We are using them. Now, broadly speaking about innovation, you know, it used to be that we focused a lot on and, and I know, you know, there are, there are, there's the Section 880 authority, right, which, which is a, an innovative. We were one of the first people to use it. We, we've actually used it. We advocated for it. It took us a while to get through, you know, we've never done that before, so it must be illegal. And, you know, you got the written law that says it's legal. I still got people telling me it's illegal. I mean, you know, there's, there's just this massive, ponderous government bureaucracy that struggles with change. 
we beat through that. So we've used those kinds of tools, the Section 880 and BAAs and things like that to try to get that. We have a, the commissioner has an office working directly for him called the innovation. The innovation team has a 10 to $15 million budget to go out and buy commercially available innovative things. You know, think about Silicon Valley, but it doesn't have to be Silicon Valley. So we've done uh, small U.S. activities. We've done counter U.S. activities. And we generally look for some convenient streamlined vehicle that might be available to us. And sometimes these are non-traditional companies. So that gives us opportunities. Sometimes they're VAAs. But, you know, we had an interesting conversation some years ago with uh, the then acting commissioner who said, what, what authorities you know, do we need? What authorities do we need to, to, to streamline acquisition? And I studied this for, I've studied this for years. And what I've come to the conclusion of, I love to have those authorities, but frankly, if I put the right team together, I can streamline the acquisition within the FAR just fine. There's actually nothing wrong with the FAR. It's just that we don't know how to use it very well. So what we have done here in CBP is we've actually created in our procurement community, a special team. What I told the commissioner is my problem with speedy streamlined acquisition is not the authority to do it. My problem with it is having critical mass of people who are skilled at doing it. So if you come in and you say to me, back when uh, President Trump was in and he wanted quick wall prototypes, right? I don't know how many of you followed that, but we got those things done awfully quickly, given how complex that was. And by the way, we use some of those procurement and innovation lab kind of concepts to get them quickly. What I had to do is I had to pull a team off and dedicate them to that. What I told the commissioners, my problem, I don't have enough teams. You know, I've got the normal business of buying toilet paper and Xerox paper. Carving out these specialized teams is the trick. Because if I put the right teams together, they can do just about anything, and they can do it fairly quickly. So we have one of those teams available. We have an, a, a goal of, you know, eventually someday having five or six of those teams. And then the longer term idea is if I've got five or six teams that are doing this, eventually I want to inculcate that naturally into the entire rest of my procurement community. But, you know, that's we're talking about a decade long activity, right, to get that inculcation. But we do have a team and we do have a plan if we can get it funded to build up more of those teams so we can do more innovative acquisition. And what those people then do is they go in and they look at, okay, you need it done by this time. Here's the technique we can use to get it done by this time. And generally, like I say, we've got authorities. We like to have options. We like to have the 880 option. You know, we like to have the BAA option because we like to pick and choose which of these options will get me there most quickly. But the key here is getting skilled people who are assigned and given the opportunity and the freedom to innovate. I have found that... Um, Folks, when you tell them that you will cover their innovation, they'll innovate. They just didn't think they'd be allowed. So that's, a again, I'm rambling a little bit in the answer, but those are our, things, our, our thoughts in that area. This goes back also to the earlier part of our conversation, the workforce challenges you're having. Because one could say, well, Mark, if these teams are so important to you, start carving them out. Start pulling folks, train them up. The pill does training, and we know the pill does boot camps. Come on, let's get it done. But I think your, your issue is you don't even have enough people to get the toilet paper and the Xerox paper done. So how can you pull them out? Because uh, yeah. that would is that explain that yeah. a little bit. Look, we are we are even with that, we are pulling people out. We just can't pull them out quickly enough for the reasons you just said. So we all understand, you know, Diane Sahakian's uh, our HCA here. She's brilliant. She's also happens to be my deputy assistant commissioner. So she's dual headed, much like I am. She's committed to it. I'm committed to it. We actually are 
sacrificing demands on our people to put people in training. It's just that I have a limited capacity to do that and still get the rest of the stuff done. So you're absolutely right. We have to take a break. My guest today is Mark Borkowski, the Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Acquisition at the Customs and Border Protection Directorate in the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mark Borkowski, the Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Acquisition at the Customs and Border Protection Directorate in the Homeland Security Department. I spoke with Mark at a recent event sponsored by ACT-IAC. Mark, one of the questions I think this group, ACT-IAC, always likes to hit upon is the technology side. And you have deep experience in the world of technology based on your uh, uh, SBI net and and other experiences. So I guess we'll ask maybe a two-part question. The first part is, how are you using technology to kind of to improve acquisition processes? We hear a lot about robotics process automation, predictive analytics, and the like. Anything you can share there? It's kind of interesting you, you mentioned that because, you know, this, this idea of, of bots, robotic process automation. Um, one of the first places um, that we did that in CDP was actually in our procurement organization. I was actually very proud of them because they did it without telling me. They just went off and did it. So I, I thought that was great. And they did it for, you know, and, and, and robotic process automation is not quite AI, right? It's, it's it, Some people would define it as AI, but it's it's the it's the kind of the pedestrian repeated activities that are time consuming, right? So uh, our folks went and applied that to de-obligations, which is you know a process by which we've completed a contract, we know, and we want to get that money off quickly so that we can use it for other things before it expires. So our folks actually created a pilot to do robotic process automation for de-obligations. And that pilot, you know, we were saving significant amounts of time, which meant that those limited human resources could go off and do other more complex contracting actions. So we got a pilot in our procurement, folks, and now based on that pilot, they're looking at expanding it to other of their uh, approaches. The CIO has a broader, you know, uh, uh, thinking on uh, robotic process automation across CBP, but with respect to acquisition, especially procurement, we didn't wait for them, right? We didn't wait for them on that. I think there's potential more broadly in some of the, the discipline processes and acquisition. However, I think, first of all, we got to get those processes. What we're looking for in acquisition, you know, we got a very, what, what my customers see is a very bureaucratic process. Lots of documentation required, all these steps and decisions. You know, we have programs that are categorized level one, two, and three, depending on their dollar value. Well, the one and two has got to go to the department. And I have very little latitude to tailor uh, how those things work. But the level three stay with me. And what we've been doing here in DHS or CBP is we've been really streamlining the heck out of that. We've been combining documentations. We've been documents that used to be 50 pages can be a five page memo, you know, because I, I have that flexibility. The reason I say that is I want to get that streamlined culture in. And then I might be able to apply some robotic process automation to those kinds of things, those, those streamlined things. But until I have those processes well enough to find, I think it's a little time before we get to that. But in procurement, they've already started, and they were one of the first parts of CBP actually do it, and they did it on their own, which I find very encouraging because they're the experts, and so now they're looking for more opportunities. And I think acquisition, finance, I think those are the two areas we've seen a lot of potential for this type of, of, of technology. Uh, and human resources. Other- Human resources. HR, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a huge area too, right? And, and then the, the the other side of this is the technology that CBP is buying. Obviously, there's a there's 101 different contracts out there where you can't go through them all. But but are you, is there any trends or anything that this this group should know about the the types of technology or what you're looking for when you are buying technology yeah. beyond 
effective, efficient, better, faster, not necessarily cheaper. So most of the technology we're buying is not is not stuff that's going to surprise people, right? We want sensors for aircraft. We want non-intrusive inspection systems. We want cameras and radars, right? And that's the basic meat and potatoes technology. But the evolution of technology, where we're seeing demands, is for integration, artificial intelligence. So, for example, we have these things called autonomous surveillance towers, AST. This, by the way, was a, you know, a, a SIPR, Small Business Innovative Research Project that the Air Force did that we adapted to our purposes through this innovation team that the commissioner has. Those are interesting because they're, they're smaller towers. They don't have the, the range of our big ones, but they're relocatable. But what they also have is they have an autonomous technology in them that will do things like autonomously dispatch Border Patrol agents. You know, so if you think about it, we have cameras and stuff, and we have a di- what's essentially a dispatch center, and you get on the radio and say, hey, Fred, there's a group of 20, and they're over by this cactus that we named Joe. So, you know, go go to Joe, and you'll find this group of 20, right? I mean, that's and, – and, and by the way, this person who's doing this is sitting in a room watching a wall with maybe 40 cameras, a computer monitor with our com- kind of combined tower camera systems – a little teletype kind of uh, machine that's telling them that unattended ground sensors are going off, and that person's connecting all that information in their head and then dispatching Joe to go stand next to Fred, right? I mean, that's so this idea of trying to automate some of that to reduce the workload on our people is kind of a consistent theme. It extends to a whole bunch of other things. The other problem that we have, for example, when we process folks that come into the country, they move from one step to another, and sometimes moving across those steps means moving across organizations. So if we encounter uh, somebody, an immigrant, a non-citizen immigrant, I think that's the current term I'm supposed to use, non-citizen immigrant, we often will turn that person over to Immigration Customs Enforcement, and then they have their own system. Who's watching the the continuous journey of that person through the system what happens when they get into cis system or if they're children what happens when they get the health and human services so creating these flows that are continuous flows and looking at things that's another common theme we have a, a there's a unified unified immigration portal program on that just within cbp we have uh, activities that the border patrol does and activities that the office of field operations does connecting those two together So a lot of our initiatives are on connections, integrations, continuity of managing a journey, uh, connecting data that exists in disparate places. Those have been the focus efforts for new technology and CPP over the last couple of years. That's all the time we have for today. My guest was Mark Borkowski, the Assistant Commissioner in the Office of Acquisition at the Customs and Border Protection Directorate in the Homeland Security Department. I spoke with Mark at a recent event sponsored by ACT-IAC. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.